Yeah, you! Who, me, Officer Krupke? Yeah, you! Give me one good reason for not dragging you down to the station house, you punk! Dear kindly Sergeant Krupke, you gotta understand It's just our bringing up key that gets us out of hand Our mothers all are junkies, our fathers all are drunks Golly Moses, naturally we're punks Gee, Officer Krupke, we're very upset We never had the love that every child ought to get we ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. There is good, there is good, there is good, there is untapped good. Like inside, the worst of us is good. That's a touching good story. Let me tell it to the world. Just tell it to the judge. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Truth Perspective. Today is Saturday, September 1st. My name is Corey Schink, and joining me in the studio today are Harrison Cayley. Hi, everyone. And Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. The subject of today's show, as you might have guessed, is the intricacies of the criminal mind. The criminal regards the basic responsibilities of being an adult as Herculean tasks, largely because criminals represent having to fulfill them. They take them away from more exciting things, and with every determent of responsible activity, the criminal progressively gets himself and those around him into more and more trouble. Now, the term criminal is traditionally defined in terms of a person's interaction with society's justice system. Today, we will be broadening that term to refer to a definite pattern in thoughts and behaviors that, even when not rising to the level of an arrestable offense, still cause tragedy and chaos to the world around them. When we look at the world today, we see an abundance of criminal thinking, from the blatant lies of the mainstream media used to justify terrorism in faraway lands and corruption and mayhem in our own, to the permanent quote-unquote victims on the left side of the political spectrum who demand the world conform to their delusions rather than the other way around. So we're going to be using at least uh, two distinct uh, frameworks to frame our discussion. One is based on the burgeoning field of neurocriminology, which focuses on both the evolutionary and neuroanatomical foundation of the crime, or of the criminal's mind. And another important source of material will be the works of the clinical psychologist Stanton Samenow, who mapped the many hundreds of thinking errors manifest in the criminal's mind. These range from the extremely inflexibly high evaluation of oneself, known as the criminal pride, to the criminal's basic attitude towards life, which is, there is nothing I can't do that I want to do. That said, I thought a good place to start would be looking into the, all of the different thinking patterns that go into the criminal's mind, because a lot of those things I think a lot of us can relate to, even if we aren't committing arrestable offenses. That said, Alon, do you want to take it from there? Sure. Um, so that, that, like you said, Corey, is the real value of the book, uh, Inside the Criminal Mind, uh, because Sam now is not only uh, breaking down the thinking and behavior and lifelong criminality of, of individuals that he's interviewed and had experiences with. Um, but he's also revealing the, the type of thinking that, to a lesser extent, uh, people who aren't criminals uh, engage in. So uh, it's at once an education about the way that criminals process their uh, self-entitlement, uh, their wants, and acting out of desires, and also a kind of um, stark reminder of how it is that at our worst, at our most character disturbed, uh, we think ourselves. Uh, so it's, it's kind of like if you're, if you're really doing some work on it and being honest with yourself, uh, kind of holding up a mirror of, of reflection to your own worst instincts and, uh, and acting out of, of certain um, impulses and, and selfish desires, uh, no matter how it would address others. But getting into, uh, more specifically, what he does in this book, which is um, it's quite an accomplishment, I think, given all of the kinds of ideas that, uh, that we've been brought up to think about criminals needing understanding and uh, given free range to vent their their anger at the way they've been unjustly victimized by society, uh, by a bad upbringing. Uh, he really goes step by step in, in debunking many of the um, more, let's say, liberal uh, falsities of, of criminal behavior, criminal thinking, 
and uh, and those things that go into the making of a criminal. Um, and where he goes with it, primarily, I, I would say his biggest education was in the work of uh, Dr. Samuel Yokelson, who was his mentor, uh, and an individual who had worked with criminals for many years um, in a, a clinical setting, uh, and who had worked on the uh, rehabilitation of, uh, of criminals uh, and, and was basically banging his head against the wall for decades to come up with a solution about how to reform criminals and came to the conclusion, as you pointed out in your intro, uh, that it, it was really thinking errors that, um, that had produced uh, the lifestyle and, and the kind of behavior that, that he had come to know. Uh, and once he realized that it was, it was thinking errors, uh, patterns of, of behavior that were based on assumptions, self-entitlement, things that the criminal would say to themselves or not say to themselves when they didn't exercise conscience, when they didn't uh, think about the repercussions of, of their acts. Um, these were the things that, that were sorely missing in the lives of, of criminals, assuming that, uh, that they weren't primary psychopaths and, and had some measure of humanity in them, um, he was able to, in a clinical setting, uh, work with them by being completely rigorous uh, in, in responding to their, uh, their thinking uh, and really get down to the nitty-gritty and holding their feet to the fire in a respectful uh, but firm way. Um, now, this presumed a certain amount of uh, willingness on the part of the criminals to, um, to do the work, to subjugate themselves to this kind of uh, review and to this rigor. Um, so that, that, in a nutshell, is, is kind of what Inside the Criminal Mind is all about. And there are a lot of case studies, and there's a lot of information uh, with, with unsparing detail uh, that, that's quite disturbing in places about how the criminals have justified certain things to themselves. So what, what you get uh, with this book is a, uh, a kind of um, way to address criminality uh, that is um, unflinching and uh, in some cases very successful. Yeah, and it, it's diametrically opposed by the the kinds of forces uh, in sociology, uh, and like you said, with a more liberal bent, that had been, you know, telling everyone that the criminals, uh, that people were criminals because, you know, the dad was mean, mom beat him, and, you know, but uh, same now, and Yokelson found in their studies um, that it really didn't, you know, it wasn't always the case that somebody was a criminal and they had a horrible, up, uh, horrible upbringing. And we can probably get into the neuroscience behind that uh, in the future. But the thing is, is that the criminals themselves, they picked up on this, this meme, on this way of explaining their behavior, and they, they used it in a way that you know, made themselves seem like victims, which is a, a really important part of the criminal's thinking uh, process, is that the criminal is always the victim in any, in any situation, uh, because that justifies whatever they have to do in order to you know, uh, get their way or you know, achieve their own you know, strange kind of criminal level of homeostasis. Um, and yeah, society will, you know, they, they'll pick up on those, on those uh, ways of describing uh, their behavior and the justifications and they'll use them. But, you know, Stanton, same now, he basically, they, when they started off uh, discussing, you know, criminals' lives and getting all of the self-reports about them and what kind of crimes they did, why they think they did their crimes, you know, they used uh, a psychoanalytic method, you know, so they had, you know, some of them would lie on the couch and, you know, talk about their upbringing and how, you know, uh, castration theory helps explain why they were, um, you know, sexual deviants and this and that. But then over time, uh, they realized that, you know, after several months of, you know, finding the sources of their, 
of their, you know, the, uh, the damage in their childhood or whatever, then, you know, they would confess, oh, yes, I'm good, I'm, I'm saved, I'm healed now, go ahead and let me out of uh, jail now, and then immediately return back to the exact same behaviors. It's like George Simon uh, pointed out, you know, you want the, you know, the liberal kind of way of seeing things would paint the criminal as a uh, wounded victim when in fact he's a hardened fighter, a hardened warrior who knows exactly what he needs to say in order to survive and he has no interest in living the way of life that you think he should. You have to really understand that in the criminal's mind, you know, the this normal way of living is so ridiculous. It's It doesn't make any sense why you would put so much effort into doing things that aren't fun, aren't exciting. You know, it's, it's so much more exciting to steal a car and, and drive down the road. I mean, the kind of thrill, I could die, you know, but I, I'm at the top of, the, of this dominance hierarchy. You know, the, the kind of thinking that goes into um, the criminal is very much, it's all about self-entitlement. It's all about doing whatever one wants, when one wants to do it, and about achieving, achieving power. And uh, what uh, same now... Um, points out is that the that a lot of the thought patterns revolve around these. Um, for instance, you know, the, in the criminal's mind, fear has a very different flavor than the kind of fear that most people have. Uh, for the criminal, uh, fear is really it's it's of you know, there are, there's a fear of death. There's but there's most more than you know the kind of fear of death that we have. It's more of a fear of, of being put down or of being disfigured or of being, um, of losing one's uh, sense of superiority over everybody else. There's this, as soon as, you know, you, I don't know if anybody has ever worked in a kind of setting with, uh, with you know, people who manifest these kinds of uh, symptoms, but, you know, any sense that there's any any dent or damage to their self-importance and mm -hmm. you can watch somebody just melt down just like crazy and just into this fit of anger that to an outside observer you have no there's just there's no predicting it there's no you know you don't even know what you did but all of a sudden this person's melting down and threatening you and he's you know and it's very much because uh to the criminal's mind you know the self is the most important thing it's it, it's you know, their dominance, their thrust for power um, is one of the most important things. And, and losing that entails like a, a sort of uh, a bankruptcy, which Same Now describes as uh, the zero state, which is what the criminal does everything to avoid, is the sense of being completely and utterly worthless in every way that, you know, and to them, it's so, it's so black and white that to the, you know, if, if they don't, if they don't have everything, or if they can't at least fantasize that someday they'll get everything that they want, or that they're the best in the world, or the brightest, or the smartest, could have anything they wanted if they would just try, but they don't feel like trying, then they are zero. Well, j just a, a short anecdote. Uh, in high school, there was a um, there was a guy. We'll, we'll call him uh, Timmy, uh, and Timmy was your textbook uh, inside the criminal mind case. Uh, this guy meant trouble. And he was, um, you know, just as you described, he had a, an inflated self of, um, a sense of self-worth, a uh, gigantic ego. Uh, he would um, start fights with people at a drop of a hat. And uh, in college, uh, I was at a bar with some friends and saw Timmy come into the bar. And, um, and I, I said to my friends, as soon as I saw him, I said, Let's get out of here. You know, there, there goes this guy. He's a he's a total nut job. We're going to see something in in a matter of minutes. Five minutes later, five ten minutes later, uh, he picks a fight with the with the biggest guy at the bar. Okay, and uh, I mean it was totally frightening. And and this this bigger guy was like, whoa, you know, <laughs> you know, let's stop. In any case, it it was the most uh, a kind of visceral real life experience of of. Uh, the criminal mind that I had seen. And there were stories about this guy assaulting people and doing all sorts of things. Um, he was a high school dropout. I don't think he ever graduated. Um, but in any case, it's, it's very interesting to, to have known somebody like that or at least witness them in action and then to read uh, case after case illustrating who this guy is 
and and what informed his uh, his being and and his way of operating. Well, I think um, one of the questions I had after reading this book was kind of a, a theoretical one <clears throat> because Sam now describes, like you mentioned, the thinking errors that criminals, you know, as a group tend to share. And one of the questions that he doesn't really answer is why they think this way. You know, like what is the source of this mindset, right? Now for years we've been looking into psychopathy, which approaches things from a different angle. Um, so after reading the book, which I, you know, I think I read earlier this year, um, so I don't have all the details, you know, right to, to hand, but what I remember of it is that, um, so we have these, these different thinking patterns, these different thinking errors, and they're errors because they don't, th the, these kinds of thoughts, they don't work in the world, right? So in the William James, Jordan Peterson, um, practical philosophy type way of looking at things, if you have a, a motivating idea and it doesn't produce the effects in the world that you think it does, or if it makes things fall apart in a certain way, it's obviously not aligned with reality, right? It's not, um, if, if you think about it in terms of evolution, it isn't um, adaptive behavior, because adaptive behavior is what works. And that way of thinking can be applied at, in, at every level and in every kind of human endeavor. Does it work or not? That's pretty much what it all comes down to. What are the results, right? But what, what is the source of these thinking errors, right? So the, what, what he shows is that it, uh, parenting really doesn't make a difference. Um, in another book that we've talked about several times, um, Adrian Raine's book, um, what's, the, what's his book called? Anatomy oh, an, yeah, Anatomy of Violence. I mean, uh, this is just a statistic that, um, um, that I've heard before, but the one that he mentions that Sam now doesn't, is that there does, there does seem to be a, a childhood period um, that, again, Jordan Peterson talks about that, you know, zero to four years old, where if there isn't a certain amount of socialization done in there, like by the time you're four, it's kind of like kids become a lost cause. There's nothing you can do after that to, to change the path they're on. Mm -hmm. But also, regardless of, of who your parents are or what their parenting styles were, you can just be a, a bad seed, right? A bad apple. And there's nothing that, that your parents can do. In fact, um, you, like you've mentioned, you two, the, the kind of liberal... Uh, mindset, which is that it's all it's all nurture and society that produces these kinds of things. In a lot of cases, it can actually be the opposite. So when you do have bad parenting, the bad parenting can actually be a response to the child or even like the infant's bad behavior. So the bad behavior can just frustrate the the parents so much that their 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 parenting skills go out the window and they just revert to um, what we would consider bad parenting. When actually it was the the kid's personality that. That that caused that essentially, and um, which isn't a, a nice thing to think, but it, it seems to be that seems to be the case. If those parents had a um, a child with a a more like serene and um, like agreeable temperament, probably wouldn't have been a problem, and their parenting style wouldn't would have been different. So there's this really kind of like there's this knot that we've got to figure out because if if thoughts are what determine behavior, and if thoughts are basically what lead the criminal mind, um, people with the criminal mind, down this path of um, this um, this improper or you know badly adjusted um, relation to reality, which is the the social sphere, other people, then how do those thoughts get there? Right? What's the source of those thoughts? Mm -hmm. And maybe Samna would say it doesn't really matter um, because. We, that's just the situation we're in, right? You've got these thought patterns, they're producing a bad result, so we have to change the thought patterns if we want to change the, the output. Um, but then again, I'm, I'm still kind of, maybe not skeptical, but there, there are other things to consider, one of which is that we don't really know how effective Sam now and Yokel methods are, right, statistically. So if they've got like a pool of criminals, how many are they successful with? And for the ones that they are successful with, are there features about them in per those people in particular that make them susceptible to this kind of kind of uh, cognitive behavioral kind of therapy or treatment? And what about all the ones that that aren't uh, that don't respond well? And what are their features? And how many don't respond well? That's that's what I would have liked to see in this book is some more like statistics to see how actually effective 
It is, because in the one extended case study he gives at the end of that book, I mean, while it couldn't be called like a complete personality transformation, it was def definitely was a success. Like the guy actually came around to living a half-decent, if very basic life where he wasn't engaging in just, you know, extreme criminality. So there's that to consider. But I saw some, some facial responses. What do you guys have to say about that? Well, I, I think your question is a really good one. And that is, you know, assuming that, that the person isn't a bad apple, uh, assuming that the person isn't a, uh, a psychopath, assuming that the person got um, a modicum of, of nurturing uh, that would or should be enough to um, assist them into socialization and, and being adaptive and, and having adaptive behavior. Um, I wonder if there isn't a, a pattern that forms in thinking, in behavior, very early on, that gets rewarded to such a degree, at least in the mind of, of the uh, person or child, uh, that just self-perpetuates itself, like a, like a kind of a... Um, like a kind of a track that doesn't have to occur, but um, but does occur among a certain percentage of people. Mm -hmm. And something I was uh, wondering, Corey, and, and I don't know if you had any thoughts on this, is whether or not there was any information in uh, the dopaminergic mind, um, since I know that you've been looking into that a little bit, that might explain... Uh, why this happens among a certain percentage of people. Well, you know, in regards to the dopaminergic mind, um, Adrian Rain, he writes a little bit about the genes that, uh, that have been associated or correlated with uh, violent and criminal behaviors. And genes that code for dopamine are, are right up there, as, as well as serotonin. Um, now, in the dopaminergic mind, uh, dopamine is the chemical that is... Uh, in the the uh, author argues is responsible for driving the evolution of the human species because that's the desire chemical the want chemical and it's associated with all of our higher critical thinking faculties it's the dopaminergic systems are hardwired to our prefrontal cortexes which are themselves uh, often seen to be either not functioning properly or damaged in terms of like criminal uh, thinking and behaviors uh, so there is a role that dopamine plays in that, but it's different depending on the type of criminal that you're dealing with. And that's something that Adrian Rain really gets into in that book, is that, like uh, you said, Harrison, it's a tangled knot, and there's no one answer to, to anything. So you can have a dopaminergic imbalance where... Um, serotonin balances dopamine in the brain, so it's more about you know nurturing and emotional health and well-being, whereas dopamine is more about being cold and goal-driven and pursuing um, all, all sorts of dominance-type activities in order to explore the world, conquer the world, you know, take control, explore, and in uh, the the developmental period for uh, in you know any in everybody you know any sort of thing can go wrong with your genetics you know firing wrong or whatever but um, Adrian Rain discusses the fact that you know the the genes that code for the brain derived neurotropic factor which is what is responsible for you know the thickening and strengthening of your neurons in your head and dopamine and serotonin and other neurotransmitters that if these genes fire wrong then that leads to or if these genes don't uh, manifest properly then that leads to a deformed brain structure and so you can imagine that um, you know even if it's a, a small percentage you know in every different region that it's not functioning properly that then you you have someone possibly with uh, learning disabilities or they just can't seem to understand what's going on in school um, you know they if they don't have a properly functioning uh, amygdala or other areas of the limbic system they have problems um, you know really connecting with other people on an emotional level and then that disrupts the socialization process and then if they don't have a fully functioning prefrontal cortex then they have a more difficult time controlling their more primal emotional responses and so then you get the difference between you know criminals who are reactive because they don't have a strong prefrontal cortex, um, just and then anything that sets them off, that triggers them, they can't control themselves. It just happens, and then they'll justify it, make up whatever reasons, you know. But then, you know, that just sets them on a life 
uh, on a path of crime for the rest of their life, and they, d you know, they don't really have much control over it. Although you could say that you could choose to strengthen those parts of yourself, and arguably, you know, that's what rehabilitation for those types of individuals would would probably look like. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. But then, if you think somebody who has a strong prefrontal cortex and who has that strong dopaminergic drive, and they're cold and they're calculating, then they're the ones who are going to use more of uh, proactive aggression in order to get what they want and they'll use it as a tool and they and what Adrian Raid finds is that both of these groups of criminals have um, just boiling uh, limbic systems and emotional systems they're just boiling over with rage and anger and aggression but for the people who have strong prefrontal cortexes they they don't get mad they get even and they, they are still motiva uh, motivated by the exact same drives, but rather than uh, you know, just blowing their top, they will plan out and carry out a, a way of getting back at you for any kind of perceived slight. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that I found interesting in researching about dopamine in the psychopath's mind is that for the psychopath, dopamine is anywhere from like four to like six times more... Uh, uh, pronounced when in terms of like getting a, a stimulus from like cocaine or you know methamphetamine their brains react four times more than than an average person's and they also don't have the emotional kinds of control to keep them from just acting on whatever whim they have and so a, a psychopath's mind is pretty much hardwired to once they see something that they want they cannot stop until they get it right so not only are they um not only is there disinhibition to the point, you know, where they can't, where they can't really control their behavior, they don't have the inhibitory mechanisms that, that go along with self-control, they also have a, a heightened kind of um, desire um, satiation, right? So, th so doing things they want feels better than it would for normally, so they've got the, the worst of both worlds, right? So not only does, does acting out feel better, they lack the they're worse off when it comes to trying to or being able to inhibit those desires. So it's that's so like you said, it's being like it's like a, it's like being hardwired to act in this way, and there's not much that you can do to to stop that. And that may and so I think that's why there are no known treatments for psychopathy to actually make to actually like reform a psychopath. Nothing works. Probably not even Yokelson and, and Samnow's method. Um, you know, there's just nothing nothing that we know. That can that can help them, or you know, they wouldn't even consider it helping. But um, back to one thing you said, um, I think it just kind of clicked in my mind a way to kind of reconcile this is that it's very easy to get caught in either or or black and white thinking when looking at all these issues. So one of the conflicts in my mind was between, or it's always when thinking about these things between the the kind of the the thinking way of looking at it. Um, like behaviors are a product of what you think and what you choose, and then the kind of neuroanatomical way of of looking at the brain and how you're hardwired, and basically what what a lot of researchers, including guys like Sapolsky, would say, like control your behavior. Like you have no free will. Criminals have no free will, and that's how we should look at it. But it's kind of it's neither of those. It's it's more of a both and. So when you talked about <clears throat> kind of neurodevelop neurodevelopmental um, disabilities and things that are actually going wrong in your brain and um, the structures in your brain that haven't formed correctly um, due to all kinds of things um, like uh, anything from the the food you eat to heavy metals to you know exposure to certain toxins to brain damage all these things can harm harm your brain either developmentally or through a trauma or something like that and then you've got um, more of just a, a personality structure well there are thoughts and and anatomy tied in both of them. So for a person that has um, like a, uh, a damaged frontal cortex who ha doesn't have the same inhibitory like self-control that a person who has a functioning prefrontal cortex might have, in those people, there is a thought. Y you can kind of divine a thought underlying the behaviors w and, a, and a thinking error. And of course, that makes sense. Of course, you're going to have a thinking error if your brain is messed up, right? You're, you're not going to be thinking clearly and you might not be able to think clearly. So your your actions, there will be a certain th implicit thought behind your actions that you are acting out in your criminal behavior, say, but it's also tied to 
intimately tied with that brain structure and what's actually going on in your brain. Similarly, if you have a functioning prefrontal cortex, your, your actions are still going to be motivated by implicit thoughts. And, um, and that's just because thought is implicit in consciousness. Like that's the, the nature of consciousness to, to have thoughts. That's what consciousness does, or well, at least one large part of it. So we kind of have to think in terms of both of those at the same time and try not to, to get um, you know, attached to either side of the spectrum. Um, but along those lines, there's, there, I, I also just thought of a way of thinking about this in terms of, um, let's say, genes and just factors that go into this kind of behavior. Because one of the hopes early on in the study of like, personality disorders and psychopathy and things like this was that, especially in the, in, in the early days of the discovery of genes and you know, decoding the, the genome, is that we'd be able to discover like the gene for this and the gene for that, right? So maybe we would we'd be able to find the psychopathy gene. And even like Lobachevsky, writing in Ponderology, he thought that there was going to be a psychopathy gene that was in, inherited um, you know, on the X chromosome or something like that, or the Y chromosome, I can't remember. Um, Brain, brain fart there, but um, but that's not the case, you know. Since uh, in, in the last thirty years, we've learned a whole lot more about the genome, about genes, and that is not the direction that things are going to be going. Like there is no gene for psychopathy. There's no gene for criminality. There are, if anything, there is a whole network of genes that might contribute. And any one of them, if you look at any one of them individually, it's not going to make a difference, really. It has to be like this whole combination. And even that is an, is an hypothesis because we haven't discovered all those genes. Like we haven't discovered, oh, here's the, here's the thousand genes that connect in this way to, to produce this behavior. It's like, it's, pr it's pretty much just guesswork at this point. But in, the, in, in a similar way, there are all kinds of factors, um, not necessarily genetic, that we can think of that might interact in a similar way. So again, we, we can't reduce things to a single explanation ever because there are all these factors to to consider and what i've been looking at recently has been the, like the latest research on personality disorders because of course there's not just psychopathy and one of the big points um one of the big one of the main themes in ponderology is that there are various types of personality disorders and he lists several of them like um like uh paranoid well he, he distinguishes characteropathies and psychopathy being like kind of brain damage um, disorders and actual personality disorders. So characteropathy would be something produced by brain damage, and then a psychopathy would be like a, an inherited um, personality disposition. And strangely enough, or coincidentally, it seems like that's the direction that the personality disorder research is going these days. Now, I'll back this up a bit. Back in like the 1920s, I believe, there was a, a German guy named Schneider who developed pretty much the system that we that everyone has in like the western world has used for personality disorders um since then he called them like lobachevsky psychopathies so that he listed 10 different types of psychopathy or personality disorders now over the years and since then the names have changed a little bit the categorizations have changed like we've got a you know we've re refined certain ones gotten rid of certain other ones but pretty much it's remarkable how how much we've retained that system and like his categorization of these personality disorders to the point where I think it's like um, we still use in, to one degree or another like his descriptions of um, like aesthetic psychopathy, which would be like dependent or avoidant personality disorder and um, um, paranoiac and schizoid or like there are a few of them that we still pretty much use like over the last hundred years. But the problem has been, like anyone who's researched the DSM um, knows, is that it's bad science. Like, it doesn't work. One of the things that, the, that they found in the U.S. primarily where they use the DSM is that it's just a totally unreliable method. So you have all these different personality disorders. Well, when you actually look at the diagnoses that people give, like, they, they overlap all over the place. So a person can be diagnosed with one personality disorder someone and then another by, by another. And you have um, what they would call... Um, um, comor comorbidity, where you'd be, you'd have like two or three different personality disorders, and basically it's just a total mess. And when they, like, I think there was even a statistic when they introduced like borderline, borderline personality disorder, or well, they introduced some some other category categorization. Um, it might 
it may or may not have been borderline. I can't remember. Oppositional? No. It might have. It was either borderline or just like a personality disorder. Um, um, basically, like personality disorder, we don't know what it is. And they found that 54% of of the personality disordered people were the that uh, clinicians used that diagnosis. So basically, they, they had no idea what they were talking about. So this has been um, this has been an, an inspiration for researchers to try to figure out what's going on. Like, what's what are what are personality disorders? Well, first of all, still no one knows exactly what a personality dis disorder is, why certain people have them, and why not. But there's been something very interesting to come out of this, and. That is that um, they are looking at these now in terms of personality disorders. Now, so what have, what have we learned about personality over the last 30 years? Well, um, the big five seems to be the most valid um, measure of personality. And like Jordan Peterson points out all the time, this was even something that he didn't like at first. He, he didn't want to, want to believe in this because the big five model was derived totally statistically like there was no theory behind it it was just an accident th that it was discovered basically like they were um the, the the researchers involved in kind of discovering this basically um from what i remember this may not be a totally accurate uh like telling of the story that they basically had all these different descriptors of personality um like adjectives basically to describe people's qualities and using factor analysis they, they basically found that they all lumped into five distinct um, like personality facets, and that's and no one has discovered a better a better model since then. That seems to capture a, a lot. Now, what they found with personality disorders is that they clump in similar ways, and they clump in ways that match on to four of those five personality dimensions. So, for example, um, if we look at like conscientiousness, um, this would be people who are orderly and like doing. They're reliable, and they basically um, like they're responsible. They, they get things done, and you can count on them in, in either in your job or in your personal life or whatever. Now, that seems to be correlated with what used to be called anencastic personality disorder or what we call obsessive-compulsive. So this is like a, um, a disorder of, um, of conscientiousness. These people are too conscientious to the point where they, they want everything to be you know, ordered, and, and they can't control it, right? So ordered to the point where it disrupts their lives and even disrupt, disrupts the lives of other people because you can get like mean, obsessive uh, people and compulsive people who not only want to control um, them, like their own environment, but whoever is in their environment, right? So that brings it, oh, that, that brings it into the realm of a personality disturbance. Now, um, like extroversion, they found that um, the people with, that are very low in extroversion or no, well, there's a correlation between very low extroversion, so this would be introversion, and um, the the paranoid, schizoid, and what they call like asocial personality disorders. The the in the UK and in Europe they use the ICD, um, like the what is it, the International Compendium or something or of diseases, and um, it's basically their version of the DSM. Now, these are the terms that they're using. So, the first for the first one, the um, that they're they're going in the revision that they're planning. They're going with the the term obsessional. Now, the next one they call detached. So, like I said, this would include what what we used to be calling schizoid or paranoid personalities. So, they they these seem to clump around the 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 dimension of introversion. These people are introverted um, and detached emotionally. Now, the um, Neurotic, so the neurotic dimension, which is high um, negative emotion, they found that that tends to clump with um, like avoidant and dependent personality disorders, and what what used to be called asthenic personality disorder. These all t tend to clump towards clump together with each other, um, and then the last one is agreeableness. So people with or uh, the personality disorders with like very low agreeableness are like antisocial. Personality disorder, psychopathy, borderline, histrionic, narcissistic. So these people are all um, very low in agreeableness. And they've discovered maybe a fifth factor. This one isn't as clear. Well, first of all, there are no personality disorders that seem to um, correlate in any way with the openness dimension. That's, that's interesting. Um, I was also looking on Wikipedia and found apparently that um, you know, some researchers have found that open, the openness dimension doesn't seem to work well when you're studying Asian cultures for some reason. They, they, wanna, like they're, they think there might be a different dimension that applies when you're looking at Asian cultures, which is interesting. I'd, I'd, I'd want to look into that a bit more. But um, 
but there's this fifth um, personality disorder function, which seems to be which what they're calling it uh, disinhibited. So these would people be people that actually externalize their behavior. Maybe there's a correlation here with actual criminality. I don't know. I haven't looked up. I haven't uh, read enough to be able to see if this is exactly what they're measuring. But so what they've found, or, and what the ICD is planning in their next revision, is to replace the whole model of all these different separate personality disorders with one model, basically, personality disorder. You either have a personality disorder or you don't. And for those that have the personality disorder, it's dimensional. So you either don't have it or you've got it like a little bit and it manifests in your life or to the point where it's like an extreme um, dangerous personality disorder where you like you are a harm to yourself and others. And the so this is this is pretty revolutionary in the kind of psychiatric community. There are some people against it and others that are for it and the, the ones that are for it are for it because this is the only way of looking at it that seems to have any kind of um, like statistical validity that you can actually that's actually based on um, on research as opposed to like a preordained theory, which is how everyone else has looked at personality disorders for the last hundred years. But the, the kind of ironic thing is that in a sense they are, um, in a sense Schneider, like this first guy, was kind of right. And Lobachevsky too, even though like Lobachevsky and the, the way that, um, you know, that his that the Poles, that like the Polish psychiatrists and psychologists were looking at things, doesn't seem to be totally correct in the same way that Schneider wasn't correct. There still seems to be <clears throat> a thing that's right about it. Uh, because Lobachevsky, like I said earlier, distinguished between characteropathies and psychopathies. So basically, what he called psychopathy is now what, the, what these psychiatrists and researchers are calling personality disorder. There's one overarching um, like category, which is just personality disorder. That's just psychopathy. Well, and, and psychopathy in the old sense of the term, just personality disorder. So try not to get confused. It, it, I mean, the, the history of the language is confusing enough, but uh, so psychopathy in the sense of personality disorder. Within that, the way they describe it is that it manifests in four or five different phenotypes that seem correlated to the, the five-fact um, model of personality. So still we don't know what's going on here, um, we don't know what the actual root of personality disorder is. Is it just is it just being on the extreme of one of those personality dimensions that that creates it? Well, I don't think so, and I'm not sure if there's any evidence that that's actually the case. But if not, then we don't know why. We just know that when we look at people with personality disorders, we can um, we can we can see them on the the five factor model um, um, like landscape. And place the you know see where they where they land in there, and that that's kind of all that that uh, researchers have been able to do so far. So we don't know what's actually going on, but there are these very interesting correlations. And um, one of the things that um, well, so what that says to me is oh, well, just a, a little bit more on the nature of of that that dimensional personality disorder like um, like diagnostic label. Is it so you can have? I think they're planning on having having go from zero to four or zero to five. So zero, you don't have any personality disorder, and then five would be four or five would be the extreme. But um, one of the problems with the previous personality disorder research, research, like I mentioned, is or not even just research, just the practice of diagnosis, was that the the problem of comorbid, comorbidity. So you would have, oh, well, this person seems to have avoidant, dependent, paranoid, and schizoid personality disorder. Well, obviously, like, you're just making shit up at this point because that doesn't make any sense. So they've developed this model to take that into account. So what it, what it basically means is that, well, what they found statistically is that the more disordered your personality is, actually the more chances that you're disordered on multiple of these four or five dimensions. That would account for what we previously thought was comorbidity, having these different separate, like, personality diseases, well, no, um, it's just that they have more disorder on kind of all these different dimensions of, um, of personality. So you can have a really disordered person, and that might explain why um, just some of the confusion that comes when you're looking at case studies, and it's like, okay, well, this person seems to be like a paranoid, but he's also got these traits that are more like psychopathy, and these ones that are more like a, kind of like neurotic. Well, it's because they're, if you look at it in this five-factor or four-factor model, it's that you know, they might have three or four of those uh, personality dimensions that are disordered that express themselves in that kind of disorder. So again, whether that is an actual disorder of that personality dimension or if it's a disorder 
that just manifests because um, in that form, because they have those personality dimensions, we don't really know at this point. There's no kind of theory to explain what's going on. Um, but it's just very interesting. So what we have to do is is take, just like there may be multiple genes that contribute to a certain like um, like genetic expression that, that expresses itself in a behavioral way, in a personality way, you have to look at all these different dim um, personality dimensions too to see like what's really going on. Um, so why might, you know, why, why might one person have uh, like basically several aspects of what might previously have been termed different personality disorders? Uh, well, it's just, you know, I'm still working this working it through. Um, like I said, I've been reading these, these kind of the latest papers over like the last 10 years on this. And really the, the reason I looked it up was because first of all, cause I wanted to see where, um, you know, where things have been heading in the, in Western research or in Western research along the lines of the stuff that Lobachevsky was looking at to see if, you know, if we've, anyone has got confirmed or denied kind of the claims that he makes. But also to explain just these questions that come and in, came into my mind after these years of reading about psychopathy, but also um, this criminal mind stuff, like what's really going on. Um, just one other thing that came that um, that came out of this personality disorder research um, is that you know over the years of trying to to distinguish what was what in personality disorders. Well, first of all, they came up with the axis um, axis one and two. Um, like uh, clusters. So the axis one were like the mood disorders, like depression, anxiety, that's, things like that. And axis two were the, the, the personality disorders where you had, um, you know, just all the things we consider personality disorders. But then they found that those clustered in certain ways. So they had like type A, B, and C, I think. And um, so, so you had like three, three personality disorders through each, in each of these A, B, and C kind of clusters within the axis two. And that's really what led to this dimensional uh, model looking at the, the personality dimensions. But what they found was that within all of these groups, there were two other groups that emerged. And they called them um, like group S and R, I believe. And these were how, this was a description of how these different personality disorders um, responded to treatment. And so the there were... Um, treatment-resistant groups and treatment-seeking um, groups. Now, the only groups out of these that sought treatment were the like the neurotic-type groups. So this would be the the avoidant, the dependent, um, the asthenic. So these were people that were high in in neuroticism. So they they actually could tell that there was something that was wrong with them, and they wanted help basically. But all the other ones were resisted treatment. The way that uh, one of these researchers, I can't remember his first name. His his last name's Tyrer. Um, he's uh, British. He's, the way he describes it was something like that, that they, uh, they don't think there's anything wrong with them. If anything, the problem is with everyone else around them. Mm -hmm. And that's the way Lobachevsky described um, egotism, uh, pathological egotism. I'm never wrong. Everyone else is wrong. You're wrong. And so they're, they're totally, they're very protective of their personality. Right? It, that they're they're kind of snowflakes when it comes to their personality and criticism of who they are, right? And so this is a description like Samno gives of the criminal mind. They um, they they know that they're right. They know there's nothing wrong with them. And if if anything's wrong in the world, it's with the people all around them that are telling him that he's wrong. Um, so there's there's this aspect of egotism that applies to all these other personality disorders or, or dimensions, like the 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 detached. Um, personality disorders, which would be like schizoid, um, which may or may not have some relationship with Asperger's, and the dissocial or antisocial, which you know would include borderline, histrionic, narcissistic, psycho psych psychopathic. And um, so there's, that, there's just that one extra dimension in there, which is interesting to consider. So now where does that come from? But... Um, to get back to the point I was trying to make is that um, we have this one overarching category like um, like with Lobachevsky and Schneider, which was, were the psychopathies. So this would be like personality disorder in general. You either have personality disorder or you don't. But you also have what Lobachevsky called characteropathy. Now, I don't think he was totally right in the, the examples that he gave. Like so far, I haven't been able to find anything basically confirming what he wrote about what he thought paranoid personality disorder was. Um, but the, what I have been able to find is, is like the stuff in Adrian Rain's book, 
what he called characteropathy, we would we would call just um, you know um, disturbances caused by certain forms of brain trauma, but also these neuro some neurodevelopmental things, um, and so strangely the the lines might actually be blurred and overlap in a way that Lobachevsky didn't uh, an, uh, anticipate because the way Adrian Rain describes it some of these neurodevelopment well he argues that um, psychopathy is neurodevelopmental probably that is that it starts in the womb and that um, so there's probably a genetic component and a environmental component it may have to do with hormones um, and you know certain environmental like influences as the the brain is developing from its very first days, and this manifests as this personality pattern. So we can look at um, we can also look at the like the architecture of the the brain itself and find certain things that we may be able to classify in the, the like the the characteropathy department. So we've got the personality department. That's like your your five factor um, personality and. Um, you can have disturbances that are identifiable within that personality structure, you know, correlated with um, the f from, correlated between the five-factor model and the like the four or five-dimensional personality disorder model. But then we've also got this brain architecture stuff. So what you were describing, Corey, about like the the frontal uh, frontal damage or um, maybe a developmental frontal like disability where you lack that inhibition maybe that's tied to that fifth um, dimensional model that they're, that they're still uncertain about the disinhibition um, that leads to this the kind of criminal like externalizing behavior um, because you can have personality disor disorders or disturbances along these dimensions without being criminal you know without acting out in certain ways but that you know so there does seem to be this distinction between forensic and non-forensic populations maybe that's where it is it's in this in this brain architecture architecture but then we've also got psychopathy, which is another kind of mystery. Because does psychopathy fit in this, um, in this personality dimensional dimensional model? Well, it seems to in some sense. But there's also tons of research pointing out the actual like brain um, abnormalities in psychopathy. Like um, the latest book on this is the one by Kent Keel, the Psychopath Whisperer, um, where he he's he's one of the guys that's probably done the most like. Um, brain imaging studies on psychopathy and his hypothesis is is that the entire what he calls paralimbic system in the brain is abnormal in psychopaths and um, he was the first person to come up with this idea previously people have identified different parts of the paralimbic system because a lot of people don't even a lot of scientists don't even think about the brain in terms of that uh, in term like they they don't wouldn't even use the word paralimbic system they divide it into to smaller areas but the reason he was able the reason he kind of made this discovery um you know it's yet it's yet to be absolutely proven but i think it's pretty um he's, he makes some good points and i think he's probably going in the right direction is that he was looking at a map of the um like i think it was the broadman the broadman areas of the brain where broadman had um had looked at the brain in terms of like the similarity between different neurons in different parts of the brain. So he categorized the parts of the brain in terms of the of their actual like structural similarity, and which you know most people don't do, don't do when they think about different brain parts. And the, the, there's this entire system like in the middle of the brain that includes the limbic system, but also like related parts um, in and around that area, and all of those parts which are like structurally similar. Um, have been found to be faulty in some way in psychopathy. And when you have, like, even if you just get frontal brain damage, for instance, you don't get the the, the symptoms that you find in psychopathy. But when when you damage those portions of the brain, you get that those symptoms. So again, this this is kind of like the overlap between the the tr the trauma based like brain damage um, like disturbances to personality and the kind of neurodevelopmental. They kind of like. They're go, they, they go in the same they they go in the same direction they lead to the same point right maybe you had this neurodevelopmental problem that's been developing since um, like before birth and it leads to a certain brain but then you can go in there and like damage all those parts of the brain artificially um, and get the same result so that's very that's a very interesting way of looking at it so um, which kind of just makes the distinction moot it's like okay so you, Basically, what brain you've got, whether you ha you got it developmentally or you know through brain trauma, that's the brain you've got, and it seems to lead to the same behaviors. So that's just a a really long way of showing how how many different factors there are to consider, and that there are 
So there are personality dimensions, and there are actual brain, like structural brain abnormalities, and just different ways of brain functioning that seem to contribute to um, the criminal mind, criminal minds, and in general, more like personality disordered minds, and that there is a connection between all of those and certain thoughts. Because when you look at personality disorders, um, you see certain thoughts, right? Like, so a paranoid, a paranoid person, person with paranoid personality disorder, acts in certain ways because he or she has paranoid thoughts about the world and the people around them. Obviously, they're going to be behaving in paranoid ways if they're having paranoid thoughts and, and vice versa. And then some people might be paranoid because they've been a criminal for so long that everybody is really out to get them. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why you shouldn't censor Alex Jones. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, any thoughts on any of that or want to take off on that and go in a different direction? Well, I was just thinking uh, in terms of uh, what you had said earlier about there not really being like an evolutionary um, kind of justification for some, like the ways that some criminals behave. Um, I'm no, not sure if that's exactly no, what you said. No, I didn't. Well, I didn't, exp I didn't mean to express that thought. Um, I can't remember what I might have said that, that you thought about that. But... Well, yeah, anyways, that, that triggered a, a, a thought in my head from Adrian, uh, from Adrian Rain's book, The Anatomy of Violence. He talks about the, that the, that for, you know, if you use like the selfish gene theory to understand some of what, uh, some of the behaviors of criminals, that their behaviors make a lot of sense in terms of just simply mm -hmm. spreading their genes in the population. Yeah. That they have, their orientation towards the world is that on that very selfish, level where all they want to do are all their, they're just programmed to spread those wicked genes. Um, and violence is one of the ways to do that. Violence and, you know, dominance and, uh, you know, sexual crimes, they, they, all of those combine in, in a way to, to make sure that their genes spread, that they can spread a lot more, uh, you know, children in the world than, you know, a, just, a, you know, a nuclear family. You know, if you're going to invest a lot of time and money into raising your children, whereas a criminal can just, you'll, he'll have, you know, through rape, through, you know, lying, through conning, um, you know, he can have many, many more children than you. And that it's, an, it's an, from that standpoint, it's, a, he's more fit you know, the, the criminal in some ways is more fit if you look at it just on the selfish level and on that yeah. and from that orientation, you know, kind of standpoint for him, it's it's a win, you know, but then when you look at it from a higher level, you know, from a more constructive, orderly, yeah. you know, civilization level that obviously that's not um, constructive if you're looking at group selection. And right. so then you see it from these two different, you know, term ways of looking at it, mm -hmm. you know, it's it makes sense, you yeah. know. It makes sense from the you know the ge the criminal's genetic pool. He wants to spread. He wants that pool to get as big as possible. Right. So there are, there are two levels that you have to look at it on at least. Now I remembered what I think what I said that uh, that you were alluding to. I was talking about the the how the thoughts are um, like like in Samno's terms, there are they are thinking errors because they lead to. Um, because they don't work essentially, they don't lead to the results that you're looking at. So obviously that is wrong in terms of just in terms of basic um, like survival evolution. Because psychopathy, like psychopaths, are more reproductively successful and like in the long term. Just comparing you know a psychopath to a non-psychopath, it does work in that sense. Mm -hmm. Where it doesn't work, like you said, is on the higher level. This gets back to what we were talking about last week in terms of like levels nested within levels and values le nested within values. On one level of value, like on the animal level, then yes, yeah, psychopathy works, right? It, it works on a lower level. But when you look at things in terms of the of a of a higher organism and a, of a higher whole in terms of society itself and the and the like even just the family unit, then no, like it doesn't work on the on the level of actual society. Or even just the like like a family, um, it can produce children. It can produce lots of children, but that's it really. It doesn't create a good home. Doesn't create a good family life. Doesn't create a good society. And psychopaths in in society just end up being parasites. And you know they they do have their reproductive success, but it is at the expense of others. So in that sense, it is not a. Um, it is not a, like a, a really successful like practical life model. Um, just on a very, just in a, if you're just looking at things like through, through, um, 
through a telescope at like one little area, then it can be successful. But when you look at at things in terms of the 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 wider context, then it is a failure. And that's interesting in ter- thinking about uh, Collingwood's idea of history and what he considered history. You know, everything that the psychopath and you know these personality disordered individuals partake in would not rise to the level of history from Collingwood's mm-hmm. point of view. That history is culture and civilization and thoughts and and ideas and a lot of things that that interest you know all you know even you know the personality disordered and you know that get, that gets me to thinking about those treatment resistant um, you know people and just why they're so treatment resistant you know that they uh, that they have no interest. You know, in in those higher aspects and that those higher values, and then that distinction in of itself is like, how do you convince someone if they can't see? Mm-hmm. How you know? You yeah, it, it's also really a, a question of perspective because there there is no uh, higher value for those people uh, that doesn't go into their um, their calculations. It's not a it's not a part of their makeup. Uh, so when we're when we're addressing these problems, it, it seems that that's something that we have to take into account. That um, among many of them, there there isn't a uh, a biological or, or physical substratum that exists to support such ideas. Uh, so then the, the the question becomes, you know, what is the answer to a group of people in a population who are parasites or worse, who are wreaking havoc, who are agents of chaos, and and how does uh, how does this element um, spread itself in addition to the biological. Uh, one of the most important ideas we come away with uh, through Lobachevsky is that there is a kind of a mind virus uh, or a Watiko, uh, as, as some other um, researchers have put it, a self-absorption uh, that, that does get spread by virtue of the fact that it, it's been propagated in such a strong and convincing uh, uh, way and, and appeals to the emotions and, and the worst instincts of the population who might not otherwise be going in that direction. So these are some of the things that we can get into next week. In addition to uh, some of the some of the questions that you uh, and frameworks that you posed, Harrison, which are quite interesting. Well, any uh, any other final thoughts? We're going to end early this week, but um, did we do we want to close on that, or do we want to add anything else to round out our discussion so far? I just wanted to just mention the Dabrowski's idea of personality as being something that's consciously chosen mm. and how important that seems to be in understanding, you know, personality disorders, um, you know, just on that theoretical level that for a lot of people, if you don't have, you know, any personality disorders or, you know, I mean, how many of us could say that we don't have any personality disorder, you know, but the, um, but it seems like that, that in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's it's the fact that that drives you, you know, as we talked about last week in the homeostatic imperative and the negative emotions and everything. They drive you to consciously choose a personality. And, you know, that I don't think that that personality that you choose could ever be, you know, you're probably not going to find it on a, on a checklist. You know, it's going to be something that you'll have to, you know, you have to look for. And hopefully, you know, you've had role models or you find role models in history that you can look to as like a model for how to develop your personality to, you know, choose to be that, that person that you want to be, you know, like nowadays there's, there are, there are several people out there, but like Jordan Peterson would say, you know, you just, you aim for the highest possible good that you can conceive of. And then, you know, you go and then you, you develop along the way really is what, what it's all about. So it's not like, you know, hopeless. Well, just on that point about Peterson, he also uh, talks about fear, uh, fear of failure and, Given the responsibility that he's assumed that he's that he's, that he's carried for himself, uh, he's shared with his audiences that he's terrified of making a a terrible mistake. Given the level of responsibility he's given to himself for sharing the best information that he has, so um, there is that. There's living with the possibility of failure, of of making mistakes, and that's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, we all do it to some degree or another, based on our um, on our conscientiousness, as as you mentioned a little earlier, Harrison. Um, but I think that that's a, a very personal choice, based on our level of awareness and our inclinations. All right. Well, I think next week I want to get into a bit more on that that topic of personality. 
But um, for this week, I think that's where we're going to end it, folks. So thanks for tuning in, um, and we'll be na- we'll be back next week. Um, just so you know, that uh, clip that we started at the that we opened the show with was from West Side Story. And uh, that's the name of it, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good, because I've never actually seen it. Um, I'm going to have to remedy that soon. And uh, we are going to close you out today with the rest of that tune. So enjoy and see you next week, everybody. Have a nice week. Thanks for listening. Dear, kindly judge your honor. My parents treat me rough with all their marijuana. They won't give me a puff. They didn't want to have me, but somehow I was had. Leap on lizards, that's why I'm so bad. What? Officer Crap, a square. This boy don't need a judge, he needs an analyst care. This just his neurosis, that ought to be quite. He's psychologically destroyed. I'm destroyed. We're destroyed, we're destroyed, we're the most destroyed. Like we're psychologically destroyed. <laughs> hey, hey, in the opinion of escort, this child is depraved on account he ain't had a normal home. Hey, I'm depraved on account I'm deprived. So take him to a head shrinker. You! Who, me? Head shrinker! Head shrinker! Head shrinker. Head shrinker. Head shrinker. Head shrinker.